Welcome to The Common Rounds, medical education for medical students by medical students. Hello and welcome to The Common Rounds. My name is Hamid and today we'll be discussing intracranial hemorrhage. So intracranial hemorrhage can be defined as a hemorrhage that occurs within the brain cavity or the surrounding meningeal spaces. There are several important types of intracranial hemorrhage that we need to be familiar with, starting from the outer part of the cranium to the inner, inner part. This includes extradural, subdural, subarachnoid and intercerebellar hemorrhage. Before we talk about what these hemorrhages define and mean, we need to understand a bit about the anatomy of the various layers within the brain. So the brain and the spinal cord is surrounded by an important layer structure called the meninges. It supports the brain and it uh, protects the brain in the process as well. It can be further divided into the dura mater, which is the outermost layer. It's thick, durable membrane closest to the skull and vertebra. A layer beneath that is called the arachnoid mater uh, or the arachnoid membrane and it uh, is spider web in appearance. It's transparent, has a thin membrane, and is attached to the dura mater. It also interestingly has fine elements that reach across the subarachnoid space and attach to pia mater. So the pia mater is a fine membrane that in turn covers the brain parenchyma, so the actual brain itself, and as well as the spinal cord. Blood vessels enter this membrane to supply the brain. Now I've already alluded to this, but the subarachnoid space is a space that's present between the arachnoid and the pia mater. There are elements of fine membranes that traverse across the arachnoid layer to the pia mater, and they're the filaments that uh, arise from the arachnoid, me uh, arachnoid membrane. There's also another important space, the subdural space, and that's a potential space that's created following separation of the arachnoid layer from the dural layer. So bear these various membranes and layers in mind because they're going to be important for understanding the pathogenesis of um, what we're about to talk about. So just to reiterate um, what I was alluding to, there are three meningeal layers. The dural mater is closest to the bone, followed by the arachnoid, which is uh, closest to the dura mater and a space separates the arachnoid from the pia mater and that's called the subarachnoid space and the pia mater is the membrane that covers the brain structure. Now let's talk about the pathogenesis. So extradural hemorrhage is referred to an hemorrhage where there's a rupture of blood vessels between the dura mater and the skull. That can be brought about by traumatic events like skull fractures tearing a branch of the medial meningeal artery leading to this hemorrhage phenomenon. Subdural hematoma or a subdural hemorrhage is brought about by rupturing of blood vessels that span the dura to the arachnoid layer and therefore blood accumulates between the two layers resulting in a subdural hematoma and unsurprisingly that could be due to trauma such as sporting injury, acceleration deceleration injury which may occur in car accidents, the use of anticoagulants such as a warfarin or aspirin or any other um, blood thinner. Individuals with brain atrophy such as alcoholics and elderly patients are particularly high risk because an atrophied brain results in increased tension in these vessels that traverse across this membrane and therefore greater tension means that an, a, a traumatic event can lead to increased rupturing. Moving on to subarachnoid hemorrhage, that's, as you can imagine, bleeding into the subarachnoid space. And that is commonly due to a ruptured saccular berry aneurysm, which accounts for 85% of cases. Most interestingly are found near the junction of communicating arteries in the circular willis. It's because at these locations, there is a lack of smooth muscles and a reduced internal elastic lamina. So these structures or this region is inherently weak and at an increased risk of developing aneurysms. So what happens is that during this during a hemorrhage, there's collection of blood over the pia mater that can lead to meningeal and cerebral irritation and the blood may obstruct CSF flow, so cerebral spinal fluid flow. And as you can imagine, when there's an obstruction in the flow of CSF and in addition to blood accumulating in this space, that can increase the risk of intracranial pressure rise and the complications from that. 
But importantly, a lack of blood flow or fresh blood flow to that region can lead to cerebral ischemia, and hence this is the type of stroke that you might come across. Aside from saccular barrier aneurysms, though, there are other causes that are important to note, and these include coagulopathies and the use of anticoagulants, intra um, arterial arteriovenous malformation, vasculitides, and cerebral artery dissection. So just to reiterate, saccular aneurysm is a, the predominant cause of, um, of cerebral hemorrhage, but they can commonly be found in regions where there is junctions involved. So that can be the anterior communicating artery or the posterior communicating artery. And the reason for the occurrence of these um, aneurysms within the, the region of, is due to the fact that the region has, lacks smooth muscle and also elastic membranes, and so it's inherently weaker. Finally, the pathogenesis of intercerebral hemorrhage relates to the fact that there is bleeding within the brain parenchyma. And this can occasionally spill into the ventricles and the subarachnoid space. It's again commonly due to ruptured microaneurysms termed Charcot-Bouchard. And the consequence of that is because of hypertension, chronic hypertension. And this is why managing blood pressure is so important. The reason hypertension is a cause of the, these sort of hemorrhages is the fact that vessel wall weakness due to hyaline arteriosclerosis can predispose patients with hypertension to the development of these microaneurysms. Other causes can be, unsurprisingly, coagulopathies, drugs like anticoagulants such as warfarin, alcohol use, a hemorrhagic transformation. So if a patient has had ischemic stroke and an inappropriate use of um, plasminogen activators can lead to a hemorrhagic transformation of ischemic stroke. And it can be iatrogenic. So if a patient has had a neurosurgical operation and it has been complicated by parenchymal bleed. So looking at signs and symptoms, in terms of epidural signs and symptoms, patients can typically experience a short duration of unconsciousness. They can then improve. And then again, decreased consciousness can be observed, followed by coma due to coning, because that pressure building up in the brain can shift and move brain structures, having causing serious complications. They can deteriorate over hours to days, and they can also have um, associated symptoms such as hemiparesis, ipsilateral pupillary dilatation as well. Subdural hematomas or subdural hemorrhage can present with a fluctuant symptoms with progression. They can have drowsiness, headaches and confusion, reduced consciousness, and ultimately coma, secondary to coma. Subarachnoid hemorrhage, patients can present with a rapid onset of severe thunderclap headaches. Patients can describe it as the worst headache of their life. Patients can also have meningitis signs, um, such as neck stiffness and pain, and that's because blood is irritating the pia mater. They can present with raised intracranial pressure, as I've alluded to already, because the blood is blocking arachidonic granulation, so inhibiting the drainage of um, cerebral spinal fluid. They can have a reactive hypertension because this increased pressure can compress the arterial blood flow, and the blood is gonna, or the body is gonna compensate by having this hypertensive state. Ocular hemorrhage can be observed in some cases because of the raised intracranial pressure, leading to compression and rupturing of the retinal veins. Looking at intercerebral hemorrhage. The clinical features of this really depend on the location of the parenchymal hemorrhage. And it sort of mimics or presents similar to ischemic stroke where the region affected can have an associated symptoms. And so for more of that, please have a listen to our ischemic stroke and watch the videos we have prepared. So in terms of diagnosis, there are some key di uh, differential diagnoses that are worth considering. Patients can present with syncope, they can be having a seizure, transient ischemic attack, or ischemic stroke. They can present with migraines, can have to rule out tumors, DNS infections, as well as hyperglycemia. So from an investigation point of view, 
Imaging is the key modality that's used for the, uh, assisting in the diagnosis of these bleeds. CT, particularly non-crotch CT, is vital. In an epidural hemorrhage, the CT can show a lenticular-shaped mass. In a subdural hemorrhage, you can see a concentric mass. In a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you can see filling of the subarachnoid space with blood. In intercerebral hemorrhages, you can see a hyperdense blood in the parenchyma. Cerebral angiography can be considered, particularly in subarachnoid hemorrhage, because it can help locate these aneurysms. Lumbar puncture in patients with negative CTs can be considered in those that are at a high suspicion of subarachnoid hemorrhage. You can see an elevated red blood cell within the CSF analysis. It can be xanthochromic, so it can be yellow due to the presence of bilirubin as well. Finally, looking at treatments, craniotomy may be indicated to evacuate blood from the brain space because the brain is a small compartment with limited space, so an increase in pressure can lead to significant consequences. Craniotomy can be considered in epidural hemorrhages and subdural hemorrhages as well. You can also consider management of raised intracranial pressure with the use of diuretics, such as osmotic or loop diuretics, and dexamethasone. Management of hydrocephalus, which can be a downward complication of intracranial pressure, is also a vital consideration, and that can be managed using shunts or drain. Specifically for subarachnoid hemorrhage, because of the life-threatening nature of this condition, we need to have advanced life support in place, and patients are typically admitted to ICU. You need to control the intracranial pressure, and one way of achieving that aside from drugs is to also elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees. The use of low stimulus environments and bed rest is vital because that can decrease the risk of bleeding associated with movement, and sedatives may be used to achieve this purpose. Strict blood pressure control, aiming for a systolic blood pressure of 120 to 150 millimeters of mercury. That can be maintained using IV fluids and calcium channel blockers such as nimodopine to control blood pressure, manage potential vasospasm, and dilate vessels to ensure appropriate blood supply to the brain. In a portion of patients, seizure prophylaxis is vital because these patients are also at an increased risk of developing seizures. Finally, looking at intercerebral hemorrhages, again, strict blood pressure control, Managing potential coagulopathy. So if a patient presents with a bleed and they're on warfarin, you need to manage their INR, bring the INR down with the use of vitamin K. Managing raised intracranial pressure, just like our other cases, is vital. And also management of hydrocephalus warrants consideration. The use of seizure prophylaxis and very rarely craniotomy can be considered. Craniotomy can, can, can be considered if the hemorrhage is in, is in an ideal location and patient can obtain significant benefit given the risks involved with craniotomy of the brain parenchyma. So this brings our presentation to an end. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please visit our website, email us, get in contact with us through Twitter and Facebook. Our episode today was put together by our executive producer Gautam and our core editor Cindy. For notes, elective experiences, and much more study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you.